welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth, or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. For today's collection of moments, Alex has chosen three melodies from arias with something in common. From the first biography of J.S. Bach that was written and published by Johann Forkel, from the manner in which John Sebastian Bach treated harmony and modulation, his melody necessarily assumed a peculiar form. Forkel here is talking about Bach's melody. I also love how he, the, the translation here ends up saying John Sebastian Bach, but that's what Johann means, right? In fact, most of Bach's sons were first name Johann, but then their middle name was what distinguished them. And he would call them by their middle name or by an affectionate nickname. The daughters had a little bit more variety in the names. But Forgel here is talking about Bach's peculiarities in his melodies. As his melody has on the whole such a stamp of originality, so have also his passages, as they are called individually. They're so new, so uncommon, and at the same time so brilliant and surprising that we do not find the like in any other composer. And so I decided today, while I was looking at BWV 170, Rue, and that is an amazing cantata with an amazing first movement, and then I thought, I need to connect this with some other great melodies. And I'll show you what they are, and give you a little hint at what they have in common. First, let's hear the beginning of the alto aria from BWV 170, Rue, Beliebte Zielenlust. about half of the instrumental introduction that you just heard and it almost hurts me to cut to cut it off like that because I want you to hear the full beauty of it but the reason I do is so that I can point you out some particularities that Bach always does when he writes in 12-8 time. Musicians who are listening will know what I mean and for the non-musicians I'll explain 12-8 time in a second but first let's listen listen to how Bach makes this melody move up in the range in this first passage. Now let's listen to the bass line. does various things with his instrumental introductions. And one thing we haven't talked about yet in our podcast is how sometimes he has lengthy ones and sometimes he has short ones. And the short ones, they could end on a perfect cadence or they could end on a half cadence. 
And here's an example of a half cadence from the cantata Bleib by Uns, which we covered recently. This is the end of the instrumental introduction from the fifth movement. pretty short and it just sets up the tenor entrance and when the tenor enters he enters on the tonic pitch and that's because the little intro set him up for that by landing on a half cadence you could also argue that it actually is just a perfect cadence but that lands on the tenor entrance but either way it doesn't close right christian do you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. the cadence doesn't close by itself before the voice comes in but bach I would say more often than not, does close that cadence. And always when he has these long intros, he does that. Because that way the introduction is almost its own little mini song. It certainly feels completed at the end. It goes through its own little mini journey, and it finds its way back down. We've talked before about how Bach uses sequences. I want you to listen to these these wonderful sequences that are happening here. This is Bach's mind at work here. He was not content with simplicity, I think. So after those first few measures, we have a little bit of a long note. Then where's he going to go? Is he going to go up here? That's what I expected, but that's not what he does. And then he's going to take us to another little sequence. Etc. And it, it's falling down, isn't it? This is a particularly beautiful melodic phrase here because, to my ears, what's stirring about this is that the sequence, the target note on each beat is the low note. Even though there are these little reaches up, they keep getting pulled down just a little bit. Here's an example of what I mean. There are little groups of three notes, right? We wouldn't count it this way rhythmically, but we can group the 16th notes like this if we just chunk them together. It's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, right? One goes up, the other is falling, and they are fighting, I guess you could say. They're, They're at odds with each other. They're pulling. It's like a rubber band thing that's happening. But ultimately, pulling down is winning the fight of that. Let's listen for that again. And this this is just a again, the master stroke of Bach here. It's not it would be boring and simple to repeat the sequence without changing anything. But he pulls it at the end, he pulls it down farther. Like he skips some sequences. 
Did you see that? Let's let's listen for that. So right there when he lands on that low note. And then it stays there. So that's really our target note for this whole thing. So now listen back to the sequence, knowing that that's going to be the target note. And it gives the whole thing more meaning that it's kind of reach up out of it, but fall back down. And then finally down to this note. Then he brings us out of the depths. Some interesting chromatic alterations there. But then we get pulled down. Oh, this is the final sort of turn. Whoa, check out that low note there. It was really odd, right? Really unusual note, that note comes to us from the parallel minor, which is a borrowed chord. It's like a little bit unusual. It closes at a little cadence that's kind of like a half cadence. Actually, I guess this does have more in common with the tenor example I chose before. It closes with the half cadence, but then Right then, he turns it around back into the tonic right as the alto enters. So the beautiful liltingness of this is the 12-8, right? And the 12-8 that I alluded to before, all three of our examples are going to be in this time signature. What this is, is four pulses, which each have three beats. So four times three is 12. Each of those are eighth notes, what we call eighth notes. And don't have to get into the nitty gritty of why that's called that, it's kind of complicated and also not very helpful. But it's one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, two, three. And it always gives off a lovely lilting dance. Sometimes uh, jigs are in 12, eight or six, eight, which is a similar feel, but those are faster. And here, in these examples, Bach gives us a slow dance. We're going to listen to this whole thing now that I've given you some context for some of the melodic shapes. You also probably noticed that it's not just strings playing. There's also an oboe playing along with the first violin part, so on the highest part. The oboe doubles it. To be precise, it's an oboe d'amore, which is a sort of richer sounding instrument and is particularly a Baroque instrument. They're not very common today, but of course our Netherlands Bach Society example here does use a real one, along with period instruments for the strings too. So let's listen to those beautiful melodies and how they reach up and down, especially those sequences, and how we get to a turn before we get the flow of the ending of the introduction.
hopefully in there you were able to catch quite a few details. Maybe it was the lilting one, two, three, two, two, three, and how there's four beats of that per measure. Maybe it was those melodic shape details that we talked about earlier. Da -da 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 -da. And then the little groups of three small notes that target the lower note. Like that, and until they get to the weird turn, the final odd little turn until they get to the end. Today, as I was um, thinking about this episode, Christian, I came up with a metaphor. You could tell me if you think this works. You know poker? Like Texas Hold'em poker? Mm -hmm. Do you know what it's called when they put the cards down in the table? Do you know what those cards are called? Like, Is that the river? Yeah, so there's the flop, which is the first three cards. The flop is get. the first three. Okay. The, this is the first three, and that's what you look at your two liter in your hand, and, you go, and that's when you get a pretty good idea of how good your hand might be but there are still two left to come, right? Then there's a round of betting, and then there's the turn, which is the second one. And that is maybe where the most interesting thing might happen, even though it's not the last one, right? And it's called the turn. And then the final one, the river. Now, there are other reasons why those are called that in poker, and I'm not an expert in poker. I'm sure there's a lot of lore behind Texas Hold'em poker and why those are called that. But I think it actually kind of fits neatly into these instrumental introductions. And I think most Bach instrumental introductions have the Texas Hold'em poker structure to it. And I think you'll see what I mean. So the flop is three cards. So you get most of it right there. That's going to give you the vibe or the tenor, so to speak. Not that, it, not that it's a tenor aria, but you know what I mean. The tone of the introduction. That's most of it. That's starting in a key. That's the pretty expected little sequences that are happening. And that's the very expected tonicization of the dominant key because he has to move us somewhere to bring us back to the tonic when we start the solo. There's got to be a little mini song happening, as I said before. So those are all things that we know. Uh, call that the flop, like the first three cards that get flopped down. And then coming into near the end of the instrumental introduction, Bach usually places a what I call a turn. I've always called it a turn, I didn't, but the poker connection didn't come to me till today. But but this little thing here, it's a turn. And it's usually a little bit of a twist, like a minor thing. Um, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be something else. But it is usually some kind of spiciness to the core that he's adding. And then this is where the poker analogy maybe fizzles out a little because in poker, the river might be the most unexpected thing that could make or break. It could like suddenly make you really lucky or not lucky. And it might be unexpected. But here in Bach, actually the very last thing is going to be the most expected thing of all. And that is that he's going to bring us back into the cadence to set up the solo melody, the solo voice melody that's about to happen. So using the poker analogy, you want to listen to this melody one more time and think about the structure of what's happening here. First, we lay out a theme. We'll call this the flop. go that was pretty expected feeling like we're living in the dominant key now of a a little more but he's, he's subtle with it he doesn't just plow us with an a chord i don't think there's i don't think there are any normal a chords yet he's giving us these sequences these are expected things it's all part of the flop here okay he's about to hit us with some turns here the real turn okay coming into the cadence the river 
All right, and again, I hate to keep on cutting you off because it is beautiful to hear our alto soloists enter there. Please do listen to this as we always do. We link these in the description. Beautiful piece, beautiful companion video by the by the countertenor that sings this, Alex Potter. He talks about his preparation for this, how he prepares for this by trying to understand the liturgical and theological implications of the text. And so there's a whole other interesting side to it. And I suggest you check out that video. But anyway, Christian, what do you think? Do you think the poker analogy tracks for you at all? Or is there maybe a cleaner, different analogy that could work for this? It works for Baroque aria style, I think, because it's continuous. Yeah. The poker analogy, I think it works because those three events in order are continuous in the poker game and they all build off of one another. And the Baroque style is is the same way when you begin a Baroque composition. It's pretty cleverly hidden, the transitions between these, but you can still identify them. Whereas maybe something a little later in the classical period, the divisions between the sections of the music would be more clear cut. Yeah. Just a few episodes ago, you mentioned Christian. This was when we were talking about the prelude number 15 from book two, Well-Tempered Clavier. You mentioned the sort of flowiness of that music and how it's not having to confine to such an obvious structure as what Mozart might have. I even gave a little Mozart example in that episode. And sure enough, here, these introductions, whether they're long or short, they simply flow. They do not have to do short declamations and then close out little short phrases. They still do have cadences, but I think that's what makes them more interesting to me because they surprise me more sometimes. I'd like to give us an example of a short one. So here's our second of three beautiful melodies today. This one comes to us from the Bach Magnificat, which we've covered before. And here's a movement which we haven't seen yet in our podcast. That's movement six, Et Misericordia, which is an alto and tenor duet. But as we know, all Bach arias have a just as important instrumental obligato, which means they have to play it. That's what obligato means. That's why it's so important. And in this one, those obligato parts, kind of like the last one we just heard, are split into the strings, and we actually also have flutes doubling them this time. Here's a great example of a short version. It's kind of like what we just heard, except it's in a minor key. It has a different, a different minor flavor, but most importantly, it's way shorter. It's only four measures, but I think it still has the flop, turn, river. So let's see if you can hear it. Here it is. And that was it. I think at the beginning we had it set up. I think the chromatic stuff going down in the bass was a little bit twisty. Maybe that turn could be considered to be that. But I think in the third measure is where I really hear that turn. And that's when the melody does something unusual. And then we have the river, which takes us back in to the entrance of the voices. But let me focus on that turn. And to do that, let's listen to this melody. Again, Bach, the master of melody here, knows exactly what to do. He pulls us with these little leaping notes that give us a little sense of hope but then they like they end up getting pulled back down into the depths here and especially in a minor key with the bass moving down by step it's just it gives it a lot of pathos i think 
let's listen to what happens in the first measure melodically. So then is he going to do a sequence off that? Well, kind of. It's similar, but that jump up is what makes it unique. Let's listen to the second measure. That is so cool that he decided to do that. It just makes it, I think. I mean, it would be boring without it. And then what about the third measure? Should he continue that leap up thing? Well, he does, but then at the end of the measure, he again alters it and brings us into what I'm calling our turn. So he then jumps back up for a longer phrase up there. Da -da 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 thing up there until he closes us out with the river, right? Da -da 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 -da. I think it's also important to say that the musical stress must occur on the first of each of the three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Each beat is broken into three like that. And Bach highlights that here by having that high note on the first of three. Yes. And the the lilting slow dance of this, I, I'm sure this is no accident when Bach used 12-8. I mean, the faster ones are jigs maybe, but the slower ones are Sicilians or Siciliano form, like the Sicilian dance form that had its own style. This, mm, yeah. And those are often quite sad and in a minor key. And th this kind of reminds me of them. But they're pastoral, like they, they are supposed to evoke outdoor scenes of Sicily. Some of them are in a major key, though, like the last one we just did today. And that reminds me a lot of a cantata opening that we've covered, the opening chorus of Du Hirte Israel Hira. But they, these all these all have that in common. They all really tug at the heartstrings with this bum, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three. And especially passionate notes are found right on those beats those strong points that happen four times per measure. Yeah, but sometimes Bach, and in this one is an example of him sticking pretty simple with that, but sometimes Bach puts the stress on a non-chord tone, like he puts he puts a you know appoggiatura that's called sometimes and he doesn't do that here but he will in our next example and it's also worth pointing out that i said there were 3 128 examples in this episode but really christian there's a fourth right mm. we've already played it and we will play it at the end right clever listeners will know what i mean it's just the intro and outro music that we use right there's another beautiful 128 thing and we're saving that for another episode but I can't wait to talk about that later. But it's it's another example, right, of this same lilting feel. And Bach is not satisfied with a lot of simplicity. This one we just heard is maybe the simplest that we're getting here today. But usually he can't help himself but adding a little bit more complexity in. So that brings us to our third and final example. It's an aria we have touched on in the past. This is from BWV 21, Ich hatte viel Bekümmernis. It's 
all about those notes that fall on the strong beats. And what is the actual German title, right? Seufze. That means sigh. So it really is one, two, three, two, two, three. We've talked about the Zeufzer before with when we talked about the um, the Bach double. Oh yeah, the Bach double occurred many times there. That also had a middle movement, which was a Siciliano, I think. That's right. Yep, a beautiful twelve-eight melody. So it's no accident that he's setting the text this way and reserving this time signature of twelve-eight. I think for particularly poignant text-setting opportunities. And listeners who know the Saint Matthew Passion really well will recognize this fact very starkly. Bach uses it, I guess off the top of my head, I'm thinking of three of them, but they are they are pivotal moments in the St. Matthew Passion. Yeah, one is the grand opening chorus. And then another one is our podcast intro and outro music. And then and then the third one is a, something we've covered on this podcast, Erbarma Dich, Alto Aria. Mm, yep. There's really too many. I, I couldn't even focus on these. You know, it's just, it's not fair to other composers <laughs> that Bach is this good. Because he could, the fact that he's as good as he is at constructing a fugue subject and making that fugue be delightful and interesting the whole way through instead of just going through the motions of doing the technical side of the fugue. So those subjects have to be their own kind of beauty. But these, the stuff we've been talking about today, the aria intro melodies, he could kind of just let loose and create something that was just the most beautiful thing he could think to do. Yeah, if we ever get into the mode of comparing composers and thinking of Bach as the technical puzzling mastermind, but then it was really Mozart or Haydn, you know, or Bizet or Debussy who had the true command over gorgeous melodies. Except that's not really fair because... No, it's not. Bach actually wrote countless melodies that are unspeakably beautiful. I think those people who say that don't really know the cantatas. Maybe that's the problem. Well, there's there's also gorgeous melodies in the instrumental stuff too. So I don't know if that's even an, a good excuse for them. Right. But just speaking of some of the most gorgeous music ever, music that really tugs at your heartstrings by way of these appoggiaturas, these notes that fall in the beats. It doesn't resolve until the end of that. Mm-hmm. The last note is the resolution, but he saves it until the end. He doesn't put it on a strong beat, and it gives it a lot, lot of drama. And then this, I, there's something about this melody. I don't know what it is, especially this, the third and fourth phrases that leap up high. There's something about this that it just absolutely destroys me. Listen to this. But then after that, he, again, can't really help himself from being complicated because it doesn't stay that simple. Here's some more twists, interesting things, and then we're coming to something that we might call a turn right here. That was, that was odd. But then... 
but then it brings us into our cadence. So there you go, listener. Three amazing moments from beautiful pieces by Bach. Those are three. Those are three perfect melodies. But Bach wrote hundreds and hundreds of perfect melodies. And this is the sort of staggering thing about this composer. I mean, someone like Durofle, for example, an amazing composer, but I'm picking him off the top of my head because he's famous for not having a lot of published works. Twelve, I think, that were actually published during his lifetime. Famously meticulous composer. Beautiful what we have from him. Beautiful, gorgeous. But with Bach, you can always discover more. And it's all amazing. And now let's hear the first melody from Cantata 170, the opening aria, Vergnügte Ruhe, Beliebte Seelenlust. second melody from the Magnificat, movement six, et misericordia. And the third melody from Cantata 21, Ich hatte viel Bekümmernis, the aria Zeufzer Tränen. If this exploration of these musical moments has inspired you to hear the rest of their respective works that they come from, please see the links that Alex has put in the episode description. Please find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe if you want to hear our new episodes as they are released. Okay, Christian, what's up for next week? 
we will begin our yearly mini-series on a Brandenburg concerto. This year, it's number five in D major. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) ¶¶